Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman, coming to you every Tuesday with our general topic of the week, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, Jenny always chooses our topics and does some research, and I have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> so we'll see if I have much to contribute this week or not. But uh, so start us off, Jenny, what, what's some hints as to what we're, we're doing this week? I 100% feel like you're going to be like, oh. Yeah, I have lots to say about this. <laughs> we will see. Well, I want to talk about a maybe king. A what king? A maybe king. Like maybe. maybe he's maybe he's a king. Hmm. Pretty ubiquitous um, in modern film and media. Huh. Not ringing a bell. You got it me. involves a sword and a stone. Oh, okay. King Arthur. All right. There we go. Good yeah. deal. Yeah. No, that's, that's fun stuff. Right. So there's King so many Arthur's... different versions and everything that there's, there's tons to talk about there. So. Right. And I don't, and we're not even going to get into some of the cool stuff like this just about him is fascinating. Yeah. So like the Knights of the round table, the Merlin stuff, all of that, like it's all interesting. Yep. All of it. Sounds good. All right. So the question is, who the hell was King Arthur? Because maybe he existed, maybe he didn't. What do you think? I bet the legend is based on somebody. But, right. you know, I, I know there is, there is an Arthur, I believe, when you go back to the, the English king's pre-Norman invasion at some point. But I don't know if they really know anything about him or anything. But I think... I think they have just chose one of the old Anglo-Saxon kings and just grew some legends. Fairly, fairly accurate. Like, somewhat based in history, but also somewhat not. Yep. So the real question is, was he a real person? Was he a king? Was he a warlord? Maybe. Maybe not. Um, however, super fascinating. So some of the earliest literary references come from Welsh and Breton sources. Um if you want to look at some of those, they're pretty like far back, but there's like been an academic survey done that has identified three key strands to the portrayal of Arthur in the earliest like histories. Okay. So here's the three key things. The first one is, is that he was a peerless warrior. So like no one equaled him and he functioned the same as like a monster hunting protector of Britain from all internal and external threats. Yeah. This is such a great way to describe someone. Monster he hunter. He is the English wisher. So. That's right. Which, once again, please watch The Witcher, folks. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm working my way through it as we speak. It's good stuff. Oh, it's so good. It's got me reading the novels. So now, now I'm working on the novels. So I was going to get those on audiobook. Are they good? I've really enjoyed it so far. I'm, I'm just on the second one. But I, I don't know. I like the tone of them. They're, they're kind of... He's just got enough of a world-weary sort of tone that it kind of clashes with the standard, you know, fantasy genre sort of thing that it's kind of, I like him. I'll have to check it out then because that's been 
on my list to determine. Okay, so um, some of the human threats were like the Saxtons that he would have fought. Um, so, for example, there's an account in the Historia Britonium that says that he fought the Saxons. But a majority of the accounts from these three things are supernatural. Mm -hmm. So they include giant cat monsters, destructive divine boars, dragons, dog heads, giants, um, and witches, of course, because why not? <laughs> Gotta have the witches. That's right. And then the second strand is that the pre-Galfridian Arthur was a figure of folklore, so specifically a localized magical wonder story, mm -hmm. um, and potentially was the leader of a band of superhuman heroes who lived in the wilds of the landscape. I just, I love it. Nice. Um, and then the third and final thing is that the early Welsh Arthur actually had a close connection with the Welsh Otherworld, or the Annan. Um, so on one hand, he launches assaults on the otherworldly fortresses in search of treasure and then frees their prisoners. But on the other hand, his war band in the earliest sources include former pagan gods, his wife, and his possessions are clearly otherworldly in origin. Okay. Right? Yeah. So one of the most famous poetic references comes in the collection of heroic death songs, songs known as the, the Godo... Dodin, um, and it's attributed to a 6th century poet by the name of Aniran. And basically like, it says things like he has slewn 100 or 300 enemies. Despite this, there is no Arthur, but you can't compare it to the value. Like, yes, he exists, but it's not really him. It's the force of man, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, it's only known from a 13th century manuscript, so is it possible that that was just like rewritten and thrown in there later because you know as things are rewritten things are added unknown um so they think probably that dates to potentially the ninth century and was just recopied from a 13th like recopied in the 13th century okay there's several poems attributed to Talesian, who's a poet to have said to have lived in the sixth century, who also kind of vaguely refers to Arthur. Um, and these tales would have dated in the eighth to the 16th century. So 200 years later, someone wrote these tales down, which okay. I don't know how much you want to put stock into those stories, but okie doke. Um, they include stories like the chair of the prince, uh, Arthur the Blessed and the Spoils of Anwen, which basically are stories about Arthur going to the other world and a dragon. Okay. Um, and I don't know if people know, but um, one of the things is Arthur's name is Pendragon, like Uther Pendragon, right? Yep. And a lot of stuff. So that is um, in the language of the time would have meant dragon. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've always heard that surname and everything, and yeah, I've always kind of wondered where it came from. Because, like, I don't know. You know, I only know kind of the the more modern version that people like to retell. Kind of, so it's you know the whole Lancelot, Guinevere, Search for the Grail, Sword in the Stone stuff. We're gonna find out. It's all about Freemasons, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> everything is um other early karma be nice 
Don't bark at the neighbors. You're okay. Okay. Other early Welsh texts include a poem found in the Black Book of Carmethian, um, and it's called the What Man is the Gatekeeper? So this is supposed to be the dialogue between Arthur and the gatekeeper of a fortress that he wants to go into, okay. in which Arthur basically names all the deeds he and his men did. Um, so people like Kay and Bedivere, which are names of the Knights of the Round Table. Mm-hmm. And then thinking French knight trying to get into a castle, but right, money python, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's totally after the tale of Arthur, and they were very learned men, the Monty Pythoners. Like, they didn't they go to Oxford and stuff? Yeah, I I believe so. I think that's where they all met. So, yeah, very well read people. So, they would probably have definitely known this well. Um, and then there's another tale called the Kulik and Ulwin, which once again is about some of the men of Arthur. But there is a modern Mag Mabinogian collection that has a list of 200 Knights of the Round Table. Um, oh. However, in this one, Kay and Bedivere are the central knights. Okay. Um, okay. I was just trying to think ahead. of what Knights of the Round Table I do know. <laughs> yeah. Names Bedivere, that come Lance to mind. A lot. Beyond that, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got, yeah. Gwen and Bedivere okay. and Lancelot and Boars and that, that's about you know Galahad. Yeah, Galahad, about, you're right. Those are the only ones I can think of, and that's mostly because of Monty Python. <laughs> Sadly enough, we are such classy, like English lit people. Yep, yeah, yep. we know most of our uh, references from Monty Python, so that's yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is it, it ties into my senior year of high school. We had to write a research paper, and I chose to do a, a research paper on Oliver Cromwell solely because of the Monty Python Oliver Cromwell song. So, oh my god, that's awesome! Just entirely so I could write this thing and then quote the song in my my you know bibliography. So, I think that's a hundred percent worth it, and that's pretty yep. internet. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was that was that was fun. So I learned something about Oliver Cromwell, and I got to cite Monty Python. So I love it. Mission accomplished. So um, the story of Mabinogian. These names are so hard. Um, that's a story that tells of Arthur helping his kinman Kuwick win the hand of Olwen, who was the daughter of a chief giant, by completing a bunch of impossible tasks, including hunting a semi-divine boar. Okay. And doing other things. So there's multiple like things that reference this particular story with the wild boar. Its mm-hmm. name was Troint. <laughs> the <laughs> fact that it's named is amazing. Um, and then finally, Arthur himself is just mentioned a lot of um, times in the Welsh triads, which are collections of short summaries of Welsh tradition and legends um, that link things together. So the later manuscripts of the triads are der- derivative from Geoffrey of Monmouth and later the continental traditions, but the earlier ones don't have any influence and pretty much refer to pre-existing wealth traditions. So okay. pre-church influence. Yeah. <clears throat> um, however, even in these like early stories, Arthur's court had started to be kind of legendary in Britain as a whole. Um, Arthur's court is sometimes substituted for the island of Britain in several things. So, like, mm. 
it's hard to determine which is which, but man, if the court is the whole island, that's a pretty big court, man. <laughs> yeah. Gives you a lot of night to the round table, huh? That's right, there are. Um, in particular, if you look at some of the early Galfridian Welsh poems, um, those are written in the style of making the knights like saints. So okay. they're the post-Roman saints. None of them are super reliable historically. Shocker there. <laughs> um, but they did mimic them after saints that would have happened at the time. Okay. So according to the life of St. Gildas, which was written in the 12th century, Arthur was said to have killed Gildas's brother, Huel, and rescued his wife, Guinevere, from Glastonbury. And then in the life of St. Caddick, written around 1100, um, that was written by Lifris of Lancarfen, by the way. These names, I just love them. <laughs> Such Welsh names. The saint gives protection to a man who killed three of Arthur's soldiers, and Arthur demands a herd of cattle as payment for his men's life. And they're delivered as demanded, but when Arthur takes possession of the animals, they turn into a bundle of ferns. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I would be real pissed off to think I was getting cows and then I got a bunch of plants. Yeah. But then if I kind of didn't care, I would be so excited I got plants. It seems a little wrong to get ripped off by a saint, though. I mean, saints aren't necessarily saintly other than in what <laughs> we now believe, right? I mean, yeah, it's like the Holy Roman Empire. It's neither holy nor Roman. There you go. Yeah. So um, other... Similar incidents are described in the medieval biographies written in the 12th century. And a less legendary account of Arthur actually appears later in the early 11th century, um, which is potentially written in the 11th century, but it's copied into the 15th century. So they find it in a 15th century document, but it says it's from the 11th century. I love okay. how these medieval writings work. Yeah. Um, and remember, in medieval writings, they're just repeating the characters over and over and over and adding embellishment every time that they rewrite it because yeah. it's boring. So um, that one's just makes him more of a normal dude in that story. Okay. And then the final thing on this early work is from William of Malmesbury's book um, which provide the first evidence for a belief that Arthur was not actually dead and would at some point return. And this is a theme that's often revisited in post galfridian folklore. It's also a theme that is explored in the Bible. So it makes sense that that would be like he would rise again, he would come back and save them just kind of like Jesus is supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. So Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britannia, which was completed in 1138, contains the first full narrative of Arthur's life. It's pretty imaginary and pretty fanciful. Um, it's an account of British kings from Trojan exile of Brutus to the 17th century Welsh king Codwaller. So he places Arthur in the same post-Roman period as um, the Historia Britonium and the Annals of Cambria do and he incorporates arthur's father uther pendragon his magical merlin and the story of his conception in which uther disguised as his enemy by merlin's magic sleeps with his enemy's wife and that's when she conceives arthur and then uther dies at age 15 uther dies and at age 15 
Arthur becomes king of Britain and starts fighting in a series of battles, culminating in the Battle of Bath. And then he defeats the Picts and the Scots and creates the Arthurian Empire through the conquests in Ireland and Iceland and the Orkney Islands. This dude basically was like pretty war heavy in yeah. his teens while his hormones were raging, in other words. <laughs> so after he conquests all these places, there's mm-hmm. 12 years of peace. And he finally is like, you know what, though? Wouldn't it be cool if we took over Norway? So he sets out to expand his empire, takes Norway, Denmark, and Gaul. Gaul was still held by the Roman Empire at this time. And Arthur's victory leads to further confrontation with Rome. So Arthur and his warriors, including Kay, Belvedere, Gwain, um, they defeat the Roman emperor, Lucius Tiberius, in Gaul. But then as they decide to prepare to march on Rome, Arthur hears his nephew, Mordred, who he had left in charge of Britain, had married his wife, Guinevere, and seized the throne. And Arthur is pissed because Guinevere is his wife, damn it. <laughs> and I've heard some stories of her being listed as like the lady, isn't the lady of the lake associated with her? And Guinevere is like the lady, like she's a lady of a lake. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Like there's all sorts of variations, obviously. Yeah. So Ar- yeah, just like where Excalibur comes from and whatnot. So. Exactly. Yeah. Cause Excalibur comes from, the white lady of the lake. Yeah. Or the stone. <laughs> or the stone. Yeah. Depending it just kind of what depends. story you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's all over the place. Exactly. So Arthur hooks it back to Britain and kills his nephew, um, Mordred on the river Calbum in Cornwall. But alas, he is also mortally wounded. So he hands his crown to his kinsman, Constantine, and then is taken to the Isle of Avalon to heal his wounds and he's never seen again that's the full narrative okay how much of this was made up probably most of it (laughs) probably so it sounds like he made use of the list of arthur's 12 battles against the saxtons that was found in the historia bretonium along with the battle of kimlin from the annals of cambria um, and also the idea that he was just still alive in general, that, you know, he would be seen again. His status as king of all of Britain is borrowed from pre-Galfridian tradition. Um, and being that's just coming from those Welsh triads and some of the other, like, tales of the saints. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey borrowed a lot of the names for Arthur's possessions, close families, and companions from that pre-Galfridian Welsh tradition, including Kay, um, Bedivere, um, sorry, I'm translating these from Welsh to English, and it's <laughs> taken me a hot minute. Guinevere, oh God, Guinevere, Uther, and um, Caldwick. So, the latter, Caldwick, is um, later becomes Excalibur in subsequent Arthurian tales. Okay. I'm telling you, Welsh is a great language, but you really just have to slow down when you're reading it because yeah. Welsh and a lot of like Gaelic, you just have to read it exactly as the word is written and not think about it too heavy. It's like reading yeah. um, Hooked on Phonics. It's like phonics. 
Except for some of them seem to make no phonical sense whatsoever. You're just like, <laughs> how how do you get that from that? I have no idea. Especially especially the at least I know Gaelic examples, especially with names. You're just like, what the heck? How do you? Yeah, I'll have to send you the copy of what um, these names look like because yeah, they're was, a hot mess. <laughs> my, my favorite's Siobhan. That one. Oh, I love that name. It's a cool name, but the spelling is just like, it's like oh, yeah. Sobian. And you're like, Sobian. Sobian? Siobhan. You're like, what? Uh, have you ever seen the show Orphan Black? Uh, no. Um, Tatiana Masley is in it and she plays like 15 different clones and she's fantastic and okay. her foster mother's name is Siobhan and the way that okay. she says it sounds like Siobhan not, not like you said Siobhan or whatever it looks yeah, like it's yeah, um, yeah you it's look beautiful. at it and you're like um, uh, yeah sure I'll take your word for it that you're going to pronounce it that way <laughs> right Yep. Like, don't look at it when you're saying it that's my advice is like look at it look away and then pronounce it you'll do better yeah. Yeah, I have a problem with that, that even if I know what somebody's name is, if I'm looking at it and it's not pronounced There's no way. phonetically, yeah. <laughs> I pronounce it wrong, even if I know what it is. So it's it's rather embarrassing, but yeah, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> We're both hot mess as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the key, the names, key events, and titles are borrowed, but... Um, uh, they argue that the Arthurian section of his literary creation is nothing like the prior narrative. So, like, he borrows names, he borrows places, he borrows items, but the overall story itself is pretty unique in creation. Okay. Um, so, he makes the Welsh Madrout into the villainous Modrius, which is uh, Modred, sorry, his nephew. Um, but there's no trace of this negative character in Welsh sources until the 16th century. So like long after he wrote it, suddenly the Welsh sources have him copied in as a potential king for a period of time. Interesting. It's just wild how that works, right? After yep. a popular story comes through. Yep. That's the joy, especially of I'm sure oral tradition for most of these things is it just keeps on changing. That's right. Um, and then there's been a few modern attempts to challenge the notion that the Historia Britannia is primarily his own work. Um, there's scholarly opinion kind of is like he made up his narrative through a lot of love of lying, which I love. That's a great statement. Um, but there are some people that do believe that his narrative is derived from a lost source telling of the deeds of a fifth century British king named Riotimus. And this figure was the original Arthur. Um, however, you know, like in a lot of academia, this is one of those things where if you had an Arthurian conference, everybody would be like a little bit drunk and yelling at each other and like spitting <laughs> in each other's face. So like, it's definitely after this fifth century king, he definitely made it up. It's definitely this, you know, yep. historian. Love it. Uh, whatever the source it's extremely popular, this story. Over 200 manuscript copies are known to have survived and been translated into multiple languages. So something to have survived from that far back is pretty, means it probably was pretty prolific. Yeah. Um, 60 of the manuscripts contain the Welsh language versions of the Historia, the earliest of which were created in the 13th century. So 
13th century to the 2020s is pretty special. It's a long time. Yeah. The notion that some of the Welsh versions um, kind of also mimic this are advanced by the 18th century academia, um, you know, because academia is nothing if not consistent. So as soon as they started to research, they started arguing the Arthurian legend, essentially. Yeah. Ah! Oh, no. Come back. Oh, God. I just lost my place. Sorry, I got attacked by a bug. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is why I can't be outside. All, all hell just broke loose at my house. My bad. Yeah. Right. Back in <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. So it was popular. That was the important thing. Yep. So the popularity of this work and certain other ones gave a rise to significant numbers of new um, types of Arthur legends that were being written. And it starts getting written in the continental Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries, but particularly in France. Um It's not the only Arthurian influence on the developing like matters of Britain, but there's clear evidence that Arthur and Arthurian tales were familiar on the continent before the book was widely known or the parchment was widely known, if you will. Okay. Uh, And Celtic names and stories not found in his history do appear in the Arthurian romances. So from the perspective of Arthur, the most significant effect of the great outpouring of Arthur was on the role of the king, Um, because as time goes on, the literature centers less on him and more about the like ancillary characters. He's not as central to the story. So as time moves on, that's when you start to hear about Lancelot, Guinevere, Percival, Galahad, and all the others. Tristan and Isolde, those are them right yeah so arthur early on is the center of all the stories but later on it's not as exciting so like during this romantic period of literature he significant he significantly differs um so early on he is a great and ferocious warrior he laughs as he slaughters witches and giants and he's the lead in all military campaigns whereas once the romance story versions come out He's considered kind of a do-nothing king, and his inactivity and acquiescence constitutes a central flaw on his otherwise ideal society, um, which is interesting. It probably mimics more the local politics at the time than anything. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, but those are, I guess those are the stories that I'm you know, more familiar with. So, Where he's the do-nothing king? Yeah, you don't really hear much about him other than he exists and he's got an awesome sword so he can't be defeated, but it's mostly about, yeah, you know, Lancelot and Galahad and everybody doing things while Arthur hangs out. Right. Well, in these these versions of the stories, he's frequently considered wise, dignified, even-tempered, but usually pretty bland mm-hmm. and kind of feeble. So, like... For instance, when he learns of Lancelot and Guinevere's affair, he goes and takes a nap. <laughs> and that's in like the one of the story early stories. Like, I um, need a nap. <laughs> he gets he gets faint and goes and lies down. That's a, I guess essentially the story. Has a good lie down. All right, good deal. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I kind of feel like that would be my response. Like yeah. you, you just had an affair with my best friend. I need to lay down and think about this for a minute. Cause like the ninth century I, version of a bowl of ice cream. And, you know. Right. It's, it's laying fetal on the floor, right? Like, yeah, yeah I get it. 
Um, so Arthur and the Knights appear and the Marie de France is the work of a French poet um, who had a really, he's considered one of the greatest influences to developing Arthur's character in legend. So this is Cretan de Troy, and he wrote five Arthurian romances between 1170 and 1190. Um, things like Eric and Aeneid and Klieg, they're all about the courtly love affair in um, Arthur's court. So it's things that were happening once again adjacent but not necessarily in the middle of arthur's kind of on the sideline and not super significant yeah which is pretty funny yeah, that um, makes sense. i mean in terms of a story if you've already fleshed out arthur and had him fight everything you can think of to fight then you got to move on to like hey we've got to move on to ancillary characters just like any kind of show where you've got to have a spin-off it's like okay Time for an oh, Arthur yeah. spinoff. We need we need this person to now be a main character and have new stuff that we can do. So, well, and the most popular one, of course, is the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. Um, mm -hmm. So, this the actual original tale is called Lancelot the Knight of Cart, and this introduces Lancelot and his adulterous relationship with Guinevere, and this really popularizes the recurring theme of Arthur as a cuckold. And then you get Percival and the story of the Holy Grail that um comes around in this period of time and this once again arthur is not important he is not central to that story that's about percival yeah. and his quest for the holy grail so this guy is instrumental in the elaboration of the legend and the establishment of like that change over time and much of what came to him in terms of the portrayal of arthur and his world built on the foundations that were earlier laid Percival, which was unfinished, was particularly popular. Um, there's four separate continuations that appear over the next half century with the notion of the Grail and its quest being developed by other people. And it helped accelerate the decline of Arthur in continental romance because that story of the Grail became much more exciting and popular as they were challenging what religion meant to them. That seems no accident that this is... A French poet who happens to push Lancelot, who is a French knight, and make Arthur, who is the English king, look stupid. So, what? No That's way. insane. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Lancelot, you know, taking over with Guinevere became one of the most classic motifs of the Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. um, later texts combined this character with other like really heroic um, people, including replacing Arthur in the Welsh literature and having Lancelot be the one that completed a lot of those supernatural tasks initially. Hmm. Like that's a particularly interesting twist. Like not only yeah. are you stealing the dude's wife, you're going to take claim for all of his activities, man. Good for you. Yeah. So up until 1210, um, continental Arthurian romance was expressed primarily through poetry. After that, it starts to be told in prose. The most significant of this is in the 13th century, um, which is the Lancelot Grail cycle. It's called the Vulgate cycle. It's a series of five Middle French prose works written that first half of the century. And they're truly just like the first coherent version of the entire Arthurian legend. Only like the, the fancy version of it, not the Welsh version. Okay. And then this cycle continued in reducing the role of Arthur even more. Like that could happen, right? 
And then they start to introduce Galahad and Merlin. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also takes Mordred, who was just his nephew and turns him into the result of an incestuous relationship between Arthur and Morgana, who is his sister and establishes the role of Camelot. So this is really the first mention of his kingdom being called Camelot. Okay. Um, so this series of texts was quickly followed by the post Volgate cycle, which is the suite of Merlin. Um, and it reduces the importance of the affair between Lancelot and Guinevere still continues to push Arthur to the side and really starts to focus on that grail quest. And this is 1230 to 1240. So this would have been right before some of those like Templar quests. So as such, Arthur's pretty minor um, and not really focused on the only figures significantly during this period are Merlin and um, Morgana. And during this period of time, Arthur's made one of the nine worthies, who's a group of three pagan, three Jewish, and three Christian exemplars of chivalry. Hmm. Uh, they're first listed in Jacques de Leon's Voix du Pan in 1312, and then become a common subject of literature and art. So this would have been when they start to see a lot of paintings of Arthurian legend. Okay. And then, of course, you've got now, it's become important to art. It's important to literature. And so we're going to keep retelling this story. This time it's retold. And the book is called The Whole Book of King Arthur and His Noble Knights of the Round Table. Wait, what was just added to this? This is when <laughs> the round table appears in the 15th century. Okay. Um, and as a result of this, this story, this extended version is one of the first earliest printed books in England. And it's crazy popular. And then at the end of the Middle Ages, people are like, I don't really care about King Arthur anymore. We've done this for 400 years. Let's move on. (laughs) Literally 400 years. Um, So even though you've got this really great version of the book, there was an increase in attack upon the truthfulness of the historic framework of the Arthurian legend. Like people were like, you know, I don't think this is real. So you (laughs) (laughs) just catching on now after 400 years. Right. So then the question is, who's the legitimate king of Britain, right? Mm-hmm. If he's not that, then can we, maybe the French are the legitimate kings of Britain. So this is when the historians start to argue. And in 16th century, early, early humanist scholar by the name of Polydor Virgil rejects the claim that Arthur was ever a ruler of post-Roman empire. Um, and this, of course, pisses off the Welsh and the French or the Welsh and the English, because ain't nobody going to tell them that it wasn't right. This is Mm -hmm. central to their culture. And then social changes associated with the end of the medieval period and the Renaissance conspired to rob the character of Arthur and his legend of some of the powers to enthrall audiences. So as a result, this is the last printing of the story of Arthur for nearly 200 years. But of course, the 19th century rolled around and we were like, hey, we we really would like to, to talk about this some more. So in the 19th century, they were like, oh, no, this is just an allegory for politics during this period of time. Mm-hmm. However, in later periods, um, the early 19th century, you've got a revival 
of medievalism and romanticism and Gothic revival in general. And so there's this renewed interest in Arthur and all these medieval romances. This is when they created that code of ethics for 19th century gentlemen shaped around chivalric ideas embodied from Arthur's romance. And it's first really felt in 1816 when the Arthur was reprinted for the first time since 1634. Yeah. I was going to ask when Mallory wrote that because I I assumed it was Henry the eighth ish sort of time, but I didn't really know. So yeah. And the medieval Arthurian legends were really interesting to poets, of course, because it is a poet. Um, but you've got people like William Wadsworth, who wrote The Egyptian Maid in 1835, as an allegory of the Holy Grail written from the Arthurian legends. The most important, of course, of the poets was Lord Alfred Tennyson, whose first Arthurian poem, The Lady of Shalott, was published in 1832. And Arthur like started to get to play some of the roles in these works. He was not put on the back burner anymore. Okay. Um, Tennyson's Arthurian work reached its peak of popularity with the Ides of the King. Um, however, he did have to rework the entire narrative because he was trying to make it Victorian era appropriate and make it a Victorian era legend, which I kind of love because Arthur did come back. Yeah. Right. So um, Tennyson's Arthurian legend, The Ides of the King, was published in 1859 and sold 10,000 copies in the first week. (laughs) It became a symbol of ideal manhood, um, ultimately failed manhood through human weakness, and established a perfect kingdom on Earth. This, of course, prompted a ton of imitators, generated a shit ton of public interest in Arthur, in the character, in everything. And it brings the original Mallory tale to a wider audience. So this first modernization was published, and then there were six further editions and five competitors before the century ended. So this just gets bigger and more. People continue to rewrite, continue to revise and build upon this. There's even the story of Tom Thumb, which is the primary manifestation of Arthur in the 18th century, and it was rewritten after the publication of Ides. So while Tom, Tom is small in stature, he remains a figure of comic relief and has now included more elements from medieval Arthurian romances. And the more recent the story, Arthur is treated more seriously and more historically than in that weird romantic period where they like sidelined him. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Right. Yep. And then it comes to the United States in the 1800s. And of course, Mark Twain writes the satire Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court in 1889. So like, it's still quite popular and people have new ways to bring it back. Um, during world war one, world war two, you look at like, T.S. Eliot has an Arthurian myth um, in Wasteland. All sorts of people have modernized it. And then in the later 20th century, just everywhere, everywhere, everybody has a story that they want to make it happen. So it's just been rewritten and rewritten and retelling. Um, The retellings and reimaginings of the romance tradition are not the only important aspects that are a lot of people are attempting to portray him as this genuine historical figure. So they take away the romance. They returned back to that initial like warlord 
style. Mm -hmm. Um, and people are returning to the original Monmouth version for some of those stories and facts. So yeah, that got, seems to be. Oh, go ahead. But no, go ahead. I was just saying, it seems to be the case now that, you know, at least they seemed super popular when I was a kid because you had the Sword in the Stone, Excalibur, the movie. You know, you had, um, oh, you know, the Camelot musical and all that sort of stuff that were all kind of taking place, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. And then. There wasn't much for a little while, and now it's kind of yeah. It's, now it's the gritty reboot time. Everybody wants the the Arthurian story where he's, you know, an actual person, and it's it's all realistic and whatnot. And that seems to be the last couple movies that I've seen anyway, or at least have seen of. Yeah, yeah. all that style like you're talking about, where it's it's no longer fanciful and realistic, I guess. Well, I don't know if you know, during the 1930s, so, like, this was the last big wave of, we've had a lot of, like, movies that have come out, but there was one more big wave of weird, like, Arthurian addiction from people. Mm -hmm. And so, in the 1930s, there was actually an order of the Fellowship of the Knights of the Round Table formed in Britain. The Mm -hmm. idea being they would promote Christian ideals and Arthurian notions of medieval chivalry. And, like that was in Britain in the United States. You had a hundred hundreds of thousands of boys and girls that joined groups like Knights of King Arthur in which they promote these stories as wholesome exemplars for people to live their life by. Mm-hmm. So like, this is just one of those things that just keeps coming back in different ways over time. And I think that's pretty, pretty special. That's cool. So we don't have any true facts about whether or not he really lived but let's go down a rabbit hole. All right. In England is a stone. There's a lot of stones in England. (laughs) I've seen a few. Yeah. Just a couple. Um, But this particular one is in the West Midlands of England, and it boasts a tie to King Arthur. It's called Arthur's stone. And it's roughly a 5,000 year old tomb, but it's just colloquially been known as Arthur's tomb, Arthur's stone. Okay. For ages. Um, there's also Arthur's seat in Edinburgh, like Arthur is all over that whole region. Kind of okay. like Alexander was, you know. Yeah. So legend holds that Arthur found a pebble in his shoe while marching to battle and threw it aside. This pebble grew in size out of pride at having been touched by Arthur himself. <laughs> Another um, legend says that Arthur clashed with a giant whose elbows left a mass impression on the earth when he fell into the battle. All these are great. I think these are great ways to explain what's going on. (laughs) Um, This Neolithic tomb has long since mystified experts in the public. So they are now in the process of excavating this site for the first time ever. So they've got researchers from the University of Manchester and English Heritage which are the people that care for the monument. They said they probably won't find the legendary king, but they do hope to find traces of Neolithic Britons who built and used the chambers. Um, Archaeologists initially suspected that the tomb was formed as part of a wedge-shaped stone cairn like those in South Wales or the Cotswolds. So there's a lot of potential that they could really find something super interesting. So far, only the inner chamber of the tomb, which is made of nine upright stones, which was toppled 
topped, sorry, it was topped by a massive capstone weighing 25 tons survives today. Just outside of the tomb, they had a dig that shows that um, the stone extends into the field to the south. So they've had a couple of different phases of construction. Okay. Much like a lot of these Neolithic tombs at the time, it's southwest facing and it was surrounded by wooden posts. After the mound that was over it fell, it was rebuilt with larger posts and then the two rock chambers surrounded it. So yeah, it's super important. Um, We'll see what happens. So they think that this and the two halls of the dead that were nearby may have been part of a complex that was for rituals because archaeologists like to just throw the word ritual around until it has no meaning. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't know what it is. It's a ritual, right? (laughs) Of course. Yeah. So at similar sites around Britain, they have unearthed incomplete human remains, flint flakes, arrowheads, pottery, that kind of stuff. So a lot of trash, it sounds like. Not necessarily like most rituals, you find full pieces of things, but I'm not going to judge until they find some stuff. Um, and they are going to leave the site open so that tourists can see the archaeologists at work as they work on it, which sounds miserable to me. Um, yeah. Having worked as an archaeologist, that just sounds sweaty and gross. And then having people watch me. Ew. <laughs> Ew. So, yeah, that is happening. And then my final rabbit hole fact for you today is that Stonehenge has a link to Arthur. Okay. Have you ever heard this before? No, I haven't. Oh, so one of my favorite things in my factor fiction archaeology class was uh, one of my friends picked the Stonehenge stones were brought to Britain by Merlin okay. during the Arthurian times. Okay. I think I might have heard reference to them being Merlin stones or something like that. But yeah, yeah that's cool. they're special stones. They're blue. People have only ever found them in Africa. There's no way because, you know, we can never let people of the time have any technology that could let them move <laughs> stones. Um, so yeah, the idea was that Merlin, the magician moved Stonehenge from Ireland, England. He did not, um, to serve as a memorial for hundreds of Britons treacherously slain by the Saxons during a truce meeting on the Salisbury plain in the story. This is one of Jeffrey of Monmouth's story, by the way, Okay. in the story, he claims that this was based on an older piece of work he had found in which King Ambrosium Orionellis, who was the uncle of King Arthur, wanted to build a memorial for his dead warriors, which would last forever, but his builders couldn't figure out how to do it. So Merlin figured it out and brought the stones over. All right. Um, So the stones definitely existed in Jeffrey of Monmouth's time near this area. So it's one of those things where it's like, uh, okay. (laughs) And then in 1923, the source of the blue stones of Stonehenge which this is the interesting, I said I thought they were from Africa. I pulled that off my tongue, but I wrote down something different. Um, the blue stones of Stonehenge were actually from the Irish Wessex trade route in Pembrokeshire. So they did come from Ireland. Yep. So it's true. It's rooted in tradition. The stones were carried a great distance under the direction of some leader. Yeah. 
they were the design was inspired to be a monument across the seat in Ireland, but did Merlin do it? Probably, <laughs> probably not. But yeah, no, that's interesting. So that's yeah, my I remember. Story. Remember well yep. there seeing the blue stones and them showing that they had been ferried across and dragged all the way there. So that was pretty impressive. Now, you've been to Stonehenge, yes? Uh, yes. And you can't get very close to it, right? Yeah, not anymore. It sounds like once upon a time you could just wander around in it. But now, yeah, you're roped off. So, I mean, you can get, I don't know, somewhere 20 to 50 feet, something like that from it. One of my favorite parts of going to Scotland was getting to go to some of their like stone circles and getting to get up close and personal with them. And then, of course, we went up to the Orkneys where you could go through the Neolithic village, which was pretty sweet. That's cool. Yeah. These, these things are really neat to look at and to look at just how consistent people of the region were. Because like in Norway, they were building similar round structures. Of course, they would have had a lot of trade with the Norwegians, but yeah. Just interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I just remember, you know, just recently we were in Ireland and wandering around the Blarney grounds and they have a bunch, a bunch of like a dolmen and other, you know, old rock things around that they show off, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know as much about Ireland. So like what kind of stuff do they have there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think they have a lot of the, the same kind of Neolithic, you know, dolmen style burial things and stuff like that around, but I don't, I don't know what all they have, but they did have, did have one there. I don't know whether it was real or one that they just kind of created to have people look at when they're wandering the gardens, but I have to look that up. Yeah. Well, and that's actually a clever way to do a lot of this stuff. I was actually right before we got on the phone, I was reading an article about in Kenya, they're um, asking people to return their art that's mm -hmm. all over in museums. There's, you know, there's this big movement yeah. to return art anyway, and they're 3D printing so that people can still see it and they can still learn about their culture, which is fabulous. This huh, is genius, cool. nice. right? Yeah. I love it. I just mm -hmm. love that. Yeah. Well, well, thanks again this week's cool, cool topic. I mean, there's, there's so much Arthurian stuff around that it's it's something that's just kind of there embedded in the culture now. But uh, it's kind of cool yeah. to see where it came from and how long ago it came from. So, And I would be interested when we post this on Facebook, if anybody like wants to tell us what their favorite version of the Arthurian legend is. Yeah, Maybe I can, I can, whatever. We can put that question up and we can see what we get. Sweet. Cool, cool. All right. Well. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you, everybody, for listening this week. And as always, catch us again next week. And uh, you know, feel free to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, we will catch you all in a week. Bye.